This is a special book. It was a book many of our forefathers used to read to us, and now we're going to explore it with you. Has it got any sports in it? Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles? Ah yes, and Christian allegory. Infamous and often misunderstood Christian allegory, yet well worth rediscovering, especially in our age of dramatic, long-form listening. Welcome back to Pilgrim's Progress, as adapted for a new serialized fiction podcast in all its gospel allegorical glory by today's guest on Fantastical Truth. Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com, where we explore fantastical stories for God's glory and apply their meanings to the real world Jesus calls us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett. I publish lorehaven.com. I also co-authored a nonfiction book about fiction called The Pop Culture Parent. And today you can call me by my Bunyan verse name, Mr. Godspeed. And I'm Zachary Russell, the Zealot. And I'll be one of two Zachs on the podcast today because this is episode 104. What if you fled from God's wrath into Puritan allegory? We'll be discussing the Pilgrim's Progress with Zachary Bartles. I have really appreciated this podcast now that I have discovered it. I started going through just to prepare for this conversation. I've known Zachary Bartles for quite some time, and then momentum took over. I'm now listening to this podcast because I want to find out what happens to Christian, uh, the uh, somewhat confusedly named person. I, I don't know what his religious identity is, who sets out from the city of destruction, warned by an evangelist to flee from the wrath to come. He then, spoiler alert, arrives at the foot of the cross, quite literally, uh, is relieved of his burden of sin, also quite literally, uh, and then goes forward, is equipped with the full armor of God, also literally, has a boss fight with Apollyon, son of the devil, Satan in some way, passes through the uh, valley of the shadow of death, lots of biblical imagery here, and then, spoiler alert, finally arrives at the celestial city, which I think, Zach, I think is an allegory for heaven and the eternal life that we look forward to as Christians. Yeah, this one is going to be a little different than the other stories we've covered, Stephen, because it is so you know on the nose. It, it is very directly an allegory to this spiritual life. And it, it's kind of interesting that this was the story that kicked off a lot of the later waves of Christian fiction, because most Christian fiction now seems to kind of look down on the idea of allegory, that that's so, oh, we don't want to go there. We don't want to be too obvious. We want to be subtle. The Pilgrim's Progress being a very direct allegory was the the popular mode of fiction for the longest time. I believe it's one of the highest selling novels ever in, in the Christian fiction genre. Is that right? I believe so. And I think that statistic still holds, at least in centuries past. I think another overcorrection from the legacy of Pilgrim's Progress is that people overvalue allegory. They think that it is very simple and they view that not as a negative, but as a positive. And they think, well, the best kinds of fiction, whether it's C.S. Lewis or anybody else, the reason why we like this fiction is because it's allegorical. And this is good. And Zach, you and I went over this uh, in regards to Narnia uh, some episodes back when we dealt with the top seven myths about the Chronicles of Narnia. And one of them was that the books are straight up allegory. I think we actually get into that in our interview. Uh, Lewis has a bit of a different approach there, but one cannot deny that allegory is powerful. It is not shallow. It is not always simplistic. In fact, I think that a good allegory based on the allegories that are in scripture uh, intended there, by the way, I'm not saying the Bible is an allegory. It is literal, but it contains allegories. I think great 
comparisons between uh, physical reality and spiritual reality, which is what allegory is, great comparisons will often leave us with more questions than answers. I think people wrongly conclude that if a story is allegorical, you walk away and you've got all your problems solved. Oh, here's the good guys. Here's the bad guys. Here's what's obviously true and obviously false problem solved. I think the best kinds of allegories are, in fact, complex and more nuanced. Even in Pilgrim's Progress, you walk away and you go, that man with the shining face, was he a good guy or a bad guy? How does the story view the role of God's law in bringing a sinner to repentance in Christ? Is the law a good guy or a bad guy? And even Bunyan's simple allegory in Pilgrim's Progress seems to answer, yes, good guy, bad guy, it depends. There's a lot more going on than people conclude. Well, I think as a reader, too, you walk away not really knowing where you land in the story, that you feel very convicted at times. It's not just, oh, I'm so glad I'm not the uh, the bad guy in that story, but you you sort of relate to a lot of the the failings of the characters. Um, it reminds me of how I read Proverbs. If you don't read Proverbs and <laughs> kind of see yourself in the character of the fool occasionally, you're probably not reading it right. It's also meant as a supposal sometimes. And it very much portrays wisdom and folly and um, naivety through these different characters. And so I, I think that's very much in line with how Bunyan writes. And now I'm, I'm more familiar with some of the more modern retellings of Pilgrim's Progress. So this is going to be great talking to the other Zach about his retelling and, but also talking about kind of the original. They don't make them like they used to. The language has obviously changed a whole lot in the last 400 years. So I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about this in the, uh, in just the whole Puritan era. Many Christians have rediscovered the Puritans in recent decades it's even become a joke, as we described later on in the interview. There's a label of young, restless, reformed. I think it's still held for a particular kind of Christian. Also, I think called, at least in the social media circles, Theo bros. We do like us some Puritans. And yet there is great treasure there. The simplicity and the complexity of the biblical gospel in their writings it cannot be denied. Uh, that plus Puritan writer John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress has formed many a Christian testimony. Which leads me straight to our first sponsor for this episode, a returning sponsor, Andrew Chamberlain's podcast, The Testimony Podcast. This podcast features people of faith telling the stories that matter from their lives. These are testimonies of God's grace in times of great blessing, as well as moments of hardship and difficulty. Each episode features a conversation between host Andrew Chamberlain and a guest who reflects on the times in their lives when they have felt Jesus as their close companion. These can be hard conversations, but they tell of the mercy and grace of God. You'll hear from men and women from a wide range of backgrounds, leaders in the church, artists, musicians, writers, and entrepreneurs, sharing their testimony of how Jesus has journeyed with them in their lives. You can listen and subscribe to the Testimony Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, and wherever you source your podcasts. From there, Zach, I hear some whistling, flaming arrows shooting from the fortress of Beelzebub, which can only mean that a lowly sinner but fantastic creator is hastening toward the wicked gate. So let's fling open the doors and welcome in our guest, Zachary Bartles. Zachary Bartles has just passed through the wicked gate and is willing to go on this quest with us into the fantastical allegory land of Pilgrim's Progress. He's an award-winning preacher and Bible teacher. He's served as pastor of Judson Baptist Church since 2005. 
He holds degrees from Cornerstone University and Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, and his debut novel, Playing Saint, was called an intrigue-filled thriller and a page-turner from the very beginning, gripping and realistic. And that book was a finalist for the Inspies and Carol Awards. His follow-up, The Last Con, will leave readers stunned, according to RT Book Reviews. More recently, he released Playing Saint All Souls Day, the sequel to Playing Saint, and Clinch, a novel geared toward young adult audiences. Audiobooks from Zachary's novels are full of cinematic music and sound effects, available at various bundles on his website. Zachary lives with his wife and son in the capital city of a mitten-shaped state, where he enjoys film, fine cigars, stimulating conversation, gourmet coffee, reading, writing, and cycling. And more recently, he has been co-hosting the Gut Check podcast and High and Silver presents the Pilgrim's Progress podcast, the subject of today's interview. By the way, uh, just completely bit of fake news here. I understand that this series has now been optioned for a streaming drama prequel prestige show on HBO Max called Destruction City. Or would you come <laughs> up with a uh, another title for the inevitable uh, prestige streaming spinoff of Pilgrim's Progress, Zachary Bartle? Somebody already did a prequel. Um, I've only seen the the trailer, and it looks like they were they were trying to like, you know, the treatment Peter Jackson gave The Hobbit, where he was like, "What if this was darker than anything in The Lord of the Rings?" It looks like they tried to go as dark as there's like guys like being birthed out of swamps and stuff, and it was called Heaven Quest. Uh, oh yeah, oh wow. I meant to look into it. That sounds um, like a Christian fantasy. I've seen the ads for that. Yeah, but I haven't yeah, it. Well, once you start uh, hosting a podcast about uh, the Pilgrim's Progress, which means you're typing in a lot of those terms, all you see is ads for the different iterations <laughs> oh, and versions and you things. you need to get a VPN uh, to make sure that people think <laughs> yeah. your entire life isn't mixed up in Pilgrim's Progress, which is why I'm glad Our we... sponsor today is... Uh... <laughs> is why I'm glad we went over <laughs> your bio with your other books, because it's not like you just showed up one day and decided, hey, I'm going to adapt Pilgrim's Progress for a dramatic audio style podcast. So let's get a little bit more into your backstory. Uh, first off, uh, do you have a John Bunyan style allegorical name that we can call you by uh, during this? You show? know, you were you were teasing that before we started recording, and nothing came to mind. Uh, I my my buddy that I do the kind of half episodes with, where we discuss the the uh, theology and meaning and, and kind of suss them out. I call him Mister Sagacity, which is a, a real character from Part Two of the Pilgrim's Progress that we've chosen to forget. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what you either go with a really, really holy one, which sounds prideful and pretentious, or you go with, you know, something like, like say, Mr. Godspeed or something where you well, sound I, like I'm you're... Mr. Godspeed. Oh, that's a good oh, one. Yeah. Oh, I'll okay. be Mr. Godspeed. I guess we could say we could call a bad guy Mr. Pretentious, but I, I just I'd love that. I mean, you could just imagine, you know, going a little too far into the world building here of the Bunyan verse. Just imagine somebody being born, and then, oh, what should we call him, dear? Oh, let us call him Mr. Pretentious. Let's call him Pliable and Obstinate. You can't go too... Although, you know, you also think about the Bible itself, and um, you've got uh, a man and wife giving birth to kids and saying, let's name this one Sickly and this one Pining. So, I don't, I mean, that you have to true. leave room for <laughs> certain types of narrative that might go back and, and tweak some names to make them more poetically fitting. That is true. And it's not like you're going to be going onto the playground and saying, Stephanie, it's time for dinner. Like you're going to the playground and saying, sickly, it's time for dinner, like in your own language. So, uh, Zachary Bartles, uh, how did you find biblical faith, fantastical fiction, and then most recently, uh, this uh, adaptation project for Pilgrim's Progress? Um, well, I, I was raised in a Christian home, kind of uh, baptized at seven or something, you know. Um, essentially, my little seasons of rebellion have been so boring 
um, which is maybe something that I love about the Pilgrim's Progress because even like little side trips inside one's head and spirit then seem like epic and huge. Uh, you don't need to have, you know, been rescued from a, a crack house by the, the guy who brought you to faith to have had a, <laughs> a real journey. You know, uh, right. it, it, it acknowledges that everybody uh, is on this this pilgrim road. Uh, I, I started writing um, in high school uh, quite a bit. My wife also, my wife is a, her name's Erin Bartles. She's a far more uh, distinguished and accomplished writer than myself. Her her books are all like award-winning. Not, not her, her bio doesn't say she was nominated for stuff. It says she won this award and that award and that award and that award. Uh, so we both kind of were writing together for a long time. Uh, and I remember one, one time we both took a week off and I finished playing Saint. Actually, before that, I think I met Steven through... Um, I wrote a book called 42 Months Dry. Yes, I still ago. have that. It's a modernization of the Elijah narrative. Y'all published yeah, that through your yeah. gut so check Yeah, so kind of a dystopian. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and I, I think that's the first thing I, I kind of finished. It's more, it's kind of half no, novel, half novella. Um, and that had a, a sort of fantasy vibe to it. Um, I remember Stephen was, I, I don't even know how I know Stephen. Honestly, I was thinking about it yesterday. I don't know I've how I know people him. anymore either. It just, people just <laughs> appear uh, like allegorical representations. Uh, I think, you know, Zachary <laughs> Bartles, it may have been through Ted Cluck, who at one point uh, was yeah. the writing partner of Kevin DeYoung, who, of course, you know, Kevin DeYoung as the reformed A-lister uh, was always mentioned at the conferences and stuff. And for a while there, they were promoting by himself yes, right? <laughs> and by others, you know, all of his big Eva friends, uh, except he's one of the good big Eva guys, right? But for a while there, uh, he and Ted Cluck were writing books. And the first one, I think, was Why We're Not Emergent. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Why We Love the Church why we featuring love the church. a chapter about yours truly. That's right. And that's how I met Ted. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So you guys got together, uh, reformed uh, B-listers, C-list, D -list, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what lettered list y'all are on. Uh, Z-lister. Z that would be my... Okay. Uh, that, that would no, be my... Exactly I would happily yeah. be a Z-lister. Yeah. That's awesome. my yeah. Uh, allegorical name. Okay. Mr. Z-lister. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll just we'll just attach that and never forget it now. So I think that's how we got connected. But of course, yeah, I, I enjoyed... Um, I think actually you all had done a couple of um, uh, smaller paperbacks making fun of Calvinists. And because yeah. I could be called a Calvinist, I have diplomatic immunity for making fun of ourselves. And in fact, it's a good spiritual discipline to do so. Uh, but y'all, I think y'all made fun of emergence, which are basically mm -hmm. kind of left evangelicals, we would call them now. And you made fun of Calvinists, just the to be fair. Yes. And I got copies of both of those. <laughs> and I think they were running fairly late. And so somebody, I forget which one, was it Ted or you, actually sent me a sketch in the book. It was like some, some kind of a sketch. I don't remember. It's still in there on my shelf. I should have gotten it. Uh, if I'd actually prepared for this interview, but I think that's how we got connected. And that's not framed. Come on, uh, it's not framed. No, I, I, I have, I have superhero <laughs> posters framed, but <laughs> a very on. Yeah, brand. that was. Uh, we did kind of Christianity in like 2010 or 09 mm -hmm. or something, which was an organic free range something 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 guide to organic realness. Uh, that was the emergent one. Then we did younger wrestler reformer. Yes, yes, which had the uh, hipster <laughs> Calvin on the front. So it had Calvin, John Calvin, wearing a T-shirt over his robe that said, <laughs> "Kevin DeYoung is my homeboy." With a sketch of Kevin <laughs> Very DeYoung meta. instead of the picture of the guy with the Jonathan Edwards as my homeboy. Uh, excellent. <laughs> yeah. And then we did um, what started off as a thing called "Beauty and the Mark of the Beast," which was a name that Ronnie Martin came up with because he was going to be nice. part of this writing endeavor and then he never wrote anything more other than the title uh it was a uh it was my wife myself and and ted cluck we did kind of a 
round robin writing this uh, end times parody. Uh, and then we wrote another one and bundled them together, re-raptured the complete, re-colon raptured the complete epic. Because uh, every book for a while was re-colon something. And uh, I think that probably is where you and I really uh, connected was you you uh, interviewed us for speculative faith on on that. That's book. correct. Yes, we should yeah. link that uh, older article in the show notes for sure. So Zachary Bartles, um, is Vladimir Putin Gog or Magog or both? <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, to to identify him as anything biblical is to feed into. Uh, undeserved delusions of grandeur here with this guy uh, he's just a uh, what's uh, how how pg is this show <laughs> i'll come up with an allegorical name for putin no problem <laughs> I, I think vladimir putin i think he has roman ancestry and uh, rejects the god of his fathers and is eventually going to show up in the temple and sacrifice a goat or something like that and which will make him of course the antichrist uh, you heard right. it here yeah. first, folks. Uh, no one else has ever come up with this particular conspiracy theory. We haven't <laughs> even gotten to Pilgrim's Progress yet. Right. Yeah. Back when Christian fiction was good, you know, back in the uh, <laughs> 17th century. Uh, and as we all know, uh, that uh, all good Christian fiction is straight up uh, allegory. Uh, is that how you discovered Pilgrim's Progress? Or how, how did you find this story? And what led to your interest in it uh, even now, uh, going so far as to make a dramatized uh, podcast version of it? I mentioned briefly in the podcast that I had been in a uh, musical as about a five-year-old boy two times called The Enchanted Journey. Don't say enchanted. Is, That's a bad word. The, 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 so the, the church I went to was a mainline Baptist church. We called it The Enchanted Journey. And then the, the Baptist school I went to was like a regular Baptist, you know, like second degree separation, very, very... Uh, scared about the satanic panic at the moment and stuff that stuff was just starting to bubble up new age uh you know this is very very early 80s uh and so they changed it to the amazing journey so so it's a story i've kind of always known a, a, a real brief thing of it and we all got the gift of a, a copy of it um you know all the kids that were in it and i just set it on my shelf and i was probably I don't know, nine or 10 when I actually pulled it out and read the thing. And it was a really modernized version. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't above my reading level at that point. And I remember even then going, like identifying things in this story that I could relate to that, that were part of my experience already even. Uh, and, and thinking about other people, the people in my church, we'd been praying for and things. And like, this person's in the slough of despond. You know, this person is talkative. They bring up a lot of things and they're always, but but they don't seem to put their faith into action. You know, so so I think I've always had a love for it. It, it used to be, you know, uh, and this was going way back because Spurgeon was already kind of once in a while lamenting that it wasn't as omnipresent a volume as it had once been. Uh, so that's in the late 19th century. Um, but it used to be that basically any house that had a Bible also had a copy of Pilgrim's Progress. It's uh, behind Don Quixote. This is the second uh, most printed most purchased piece of fiction there is if you start going down after it Grimm's fairy tales harry potter and the philosopher's stone i mean they're they're distant third fourth fifth and sixth it's really uh, a, a touchstone of christian devotion and spirituality and then it just kind of starts to fall away if you if you start like uh looking at about that same time when when yrr was getting big and, and reform stuff was kind of making a resurgence uh you can find Guys like Justin Taylor, I think uh, Owen, I don't know how to say it. Everyone Straken. says it different. 
Straken, Straken, Strand, Strand, whatever Strand, it is. Strand. I, I just Strand. gave the mispronunciation yeah. on purpose. Yeah. They're straw man. It. He's usually treated as Owen straw man. I find uh, Twitter. Yeah, um, I have seen that. Yeah. <laughs> but he, these guys were all writing articles like lamenting. This may be the generation that loses this book. And they were bringing it up at a time where people were rediscovering Puritan writings and, and newly reinterested in the you know, kind of historical Protestants, especially reformed Puritan and early Baptist writings. And it's had kind of a, a resurgence since then. And, and my interest in it resurged then as well. And I, I decided to do this podcast. I was actually kind of in a well in writing. I was not sure what I was going to do next, and and I had kind of this notion after I finished all my audiobooks. I did a big Kickstarter. Did I got all the audiobook rights back from HarperCollins? I uh, did all those myself. Really, kind of tried to master this cinematic music, sound effects, but not dramatized like an enhanced audiobook. Um, and I, I said to myself, when I'm done with that, I probably am going to reboot that Elijah dystopian thing and, and maybe turn it into a trilogy. Uh, and I had a small uh, publisher in mind that I, that, uh, I had some talks with about doing that before. And it probably would have been easy enough to, to do. And then, uh, my men's group that I lead at the church, we decided we would study the Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, and a friend of mine, uh, was particularly into that book there. Uh, and the other guys kind of lost interest rather quick. And so we decided to continue the study, uh, and it kind of took the form of let's, let's do it a podcast. I, I also had watched, uh, the CGI one that came out just a couple of years ago that the Gettys were involved in, or at least Kristen Getty. It, it was pretty good. I have complaints about it, of course. And I always have complaints when you take something that takes 12 hours to read aloud and boil it down to 90 minutes or whatever. I decided that, you know, you have uh, so many, uh, Liam Neeson, way back before he was anybody. He was did Evangelist, a, a yes. Yeah. You know, wow. there's, there's all that these versions of it out there. Mm -hmm. They all gut it. And I think, this is something I think is worth discussing uh, probably today. I think part of the reason a lot of people who like nuanced fiction, especially people who are fans of fantasy and the like, uh, look down on this book is because yes. the versions of it that they've consumed have been sucked dry of the nuance and and oh. they're like okay here's here's the 10% that's just most straightforward and easiest to just kind of digest and i i thought to myself we're in an age where the most popular things are bingeable you know everybody's attention span is simultaneously like super super short you got to be just a tweet just a punchline just a little bullet point and getting really really long where you'll binge a podcast or a show that's, you know, it's a basically a 10 hour movie uh, or a 10 hour documentary in an audio format. And I thought, you know, why don't we take advantage of that and uh, really just not leave anything out? Uh, I'm so I kind of ad am adapting it into a novel uh, from what's not really a novel. What, what's what's a, a narrative, um, but it's something else. And then from there, kind of adapting it into a kind of radio drama, radio um, presentation. And, and then producing it from there. So I, my, my goal was to, to introduce people who've never read it, but meant to, to the story, and to introduce people who thought that they knew the story, but had only you know, seen one of those movies or read the abridged version or whatever, and didn't know about The Man in the Iron Cage or Formalist and Hypocrisy even. Or, you know, it's like the guys in, in, uh, here, in 1994 who thought they loved Green Day, but they didn't know the words to she. You know what I mean? <laughs> 
I think I read Pilgrim's Progress maybe in fifth grade, sixth grade, something like that. About when I got it, yeah. Bar- barely remember it. It's about the same time I read uh, Lord of the Rings and barely remember that. So I would love to uh, to take a listen to this at some point. You know what you said about it being so watered down? That's probably why I don't remember it. I'll bet I read something very, like you said, very watered down that all the spiritual content was removed because, you know, this would have been a public school that I would have read it. And it reminds me of how there's a whole generation of kids growing up right now that have watched A Wrinkle in Time, the uh, what, you know, <laughs> the what Oprah is it, the, the Oprah Winfrey version oh, no. that had, like had no connect, had no spiritual content. <laughs> yeah, had, all, all the Christian content from the books was gone, and, and there was some other questionable stuff in the movie, and it was just weird. Like, I mean, Wrinkle in Time was already kind of weird. The movie was like took weirdness up to eleven. The book is weird in a fascinating way that draws you in. Those movies are weird in like a candy bubblegum way that uh, yeah. that repels a lot of people, I think. There you go. And, that, and that's kind of the case, I think, with a lot of the Pilgrim's Progress stuff. That really helps me because I would place myself in that category of, before listening to your podcast, I would have thought, oh yeah, Pilgrim's Progress, you know, I guess it's great if you're into that sort of thing, you know, simple allegories. Uh, very basic Christianity, you know, the church back home, the stuff I grew up with, but you know, I'm, I'm a complicated Christian now there's nuance in the world and people are more than just a name, like, you know, Mr. Hypocrisy, you know, there, there's gray areas and all that. But what you're saying is that some of the versions of Pilgrim's Progress through no fault of their own, the movie versions and et cetera, simplify the allegory, even past the level that it was already simplified. Whereas let me give you an example in your adaptation uh, based on the original there is a guy who accompanies Christian uh, just a few steps up the road uh, on this Christian journey toward the wicket gate and the cross. His name is Pliable. Pliable means gullible. You're basically, you're just going to, you know, you're tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Pliable falls into the Slav de Spawn, which is like a swamp. Pliable gets out and runs away. Uh, he's no, he's going to have no more of this Christian life. Uh, in most versions, you never see this guy again. In the original version and in your adaptation, Pliable goes back to the city of destruction. I don't need to explain that one and faces a mob who are angry at him for being such a fool as to go on this journey and then come back. And that's where some of the nuance begins, because there's a historical background there with uh, Bunyan and then Spurgeon commenting on it later in what they perceive as this uh, this habit that worldly people, non-Christians have of punishing people who washed out of Christianity. And, and you and your friend in the podcast uh, in between episodes were asking, well, what's that about? You know, now it seems we're actually worse where people, the pagans will welcome you back if you wash out of Christianity. So there's your nuance. There's your complex situations. It's not just that Pliable's a bad guy and Christian's a good guy. You know, you feel sorry for Pliable because he's getting the mob coming after him. You know, they're trying to cancel him there in the city of destruction. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I don't think that's a conscious choice people have made. A, when you're going to take something that's super long uh, and boil it down, you've got to lose something, right? And the natural thing to lose is long, long, long conversations. Exactly. Because they're going to be boring on screen. And the way Bunyan wrote this book, and I think this, I mean, this is arguably a proto-novel, right? I mean, he had no, you can't hold him accountable for some of this stuff where it gets a little dry and boring. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis uh, famously said uh, that that if you go into the enchanted land, you're not coming out because you're going to you're going to fall asleep and stay asleep forever um, <laughs> or the enchanted ground, which is something later in the in the story. But uh, it, it's set up such that you follow just one point of view. You know, I think back to like 
the first time there was a change in POV and you saw what was happening more than one time on a film. Like they cut from the train and the engineer up to where the train robbers were waiting and then back to them. And, and there was this concern, like, will people follow this? And, and you know, so Bunyan's living in a world where you're, if you're following Christian, you follow him all the way until he meets up with Faithful. And then he and Faithful talk and Faithful says, well, let me just kind of summarize my whole story up to this point. That's naturally you're going to cut that out because it's a lot of talking. What I've chosen to do is instead just take all the stuff Faithful says, bring it back where it would go chronologically in the narrative. And now we've got simultaneously two different guys at two different points nearing each other, but having totally different experiences on this road, highlighting that everybody, you know, that's another thing that people have complaints people have about Pilgrim's Progress is it boils it down to everyone kind of has this same topography along the way. And you see that between Christian, faithful, Christiana and her party that go in, in part two, no one has the same experience. They're walking the same road for some people. It's this part's easy and this part's deadly for other people. They walk right past this thing and don't even notice it. Someone else gets sidetracked and it eats up years of their life and they don't make any progress. All of that. And I've, I've, I've really been frustrated with Bunyan that a lot of the stuff, when you put it back together, you harmonize Faithful's story of his own journey with Bunyan's dream of, of, Pilgr of Christian's uh, journey. They fit together so well. For example, right when the law, which is essentially Moses personifying the law, shows up at Faithful's door and says, if you don't leave by midnight, I'm going to bring your house down over your head. That's at the same time that Christian is seeking after an easier way to lose his burden by going to Mount Legality uh, and and going up, or, or rather going to... The giant, the giant hill, and Mr. Legality lives on top of the hill with his, uh, with his son, Mr. On... Civility. Ah, gosh, what's the name of the it's hill? It's the Village of Morality. I, I don't, okay. I don't, I don't yeah, think yeah. the hill has a name. It's, it's the Hill Morality. The hill morality let, let, yes. me, let me not look like I don't know the, the story. <laughs> At the same time, uh, that's when Christian is looking for an easier way to lose his, his uh, burden, and he's told by worldly wise men to go to the Hill Morality, climb it, and there he'll meet Mr. Legality and his son, Mr. Civility, and they will, you know, give him. And, and as he starts to climb, it's a nightmare. Like, it feels like the whole mountain is tipping back toward him. It's going to bury him. And so you have two different guys with, you know, a lot of it lines up in ways that I don't know if he intended or if it's just providential. That is amazing. And, and we've already crossed over into the second part of our discussion, the legacy of Pilgrim's Progress and its famous allegories. I think that that uh, role there of the law in the story is enough to overthrow the assumption that Pilgrim's Progress or any Christian allegory really uh, needs to be rejected as overly simple. You've got good guys, yes. You've got bad guys, yes. But then along comes the law or this figure that's kind of like Moses who storms into Faithful's house at the edge of the city of destruction. He has a shining face and he says, I'm going to burn down your house over your head. I'd completely forgotten about that from the Pilgrim's Progress. And I've read the original book, although in modernized English, at least once. It just doesn't stand out. And the adaptations, like you said, uh, through no fault of their own, it's just by virtue of needing to condense the story, they leave out parts like that and go for the simpler stuff. And that, yeah. that's your nuance there. You know, Mr. Uh, Mr. Christian uh, in the 21st century, who knows that there are more than just good guys and bad guys in the world, what do you do then with the law? On the one hand, you know, the law is an affliction to Christian. He shouldn't be trying to remove his burden by the law, but then the law storms into Faithful's house and carries out the will of the king 
uh, although it's best to avoid him then after you set out on the journey toward redemption. And of course, spoiler alert, in, in a couple of chapters, he's going to even past the cross, uh, catch up with Faithful and try to beat him to death. And you go, whoa, and that's going to be an interesting discussion, you know, to have. It, it, these things are, yeah, they're, they're anything but cut and dry. You, you have to uh, stop and, and parse out theologically what's going on. And, and you know, you, you had brought up, I think, uh, in our uh, emailing earlier that, that that's an example of not a perfect, you know, allegory. Moses himself uh, being the law. And, and then you think of what Moses' role. He's, he's a type of Christ in many ways. And, and it doesn't make... You know, it doesn't all fit perfectly, but at the end of the day, we give Jesus a lot of latitude, uh, you know, because he's the creator and redeemer of everything. But like um, we give him a lot of latitude in the telling of the parables. You don't insist that the parables perfectly work on every level. And and, and obviously a parable and an allegory are not the same. Right, right. A parable is there to communicate one truth. But Jesus will often, when he is explaining them, say, well, this is this, this is this, this answers for this, and, and allegorically assign value. And, you, you know, you could probably, you could easily say these things are overly simplified too. And, you know, they, they, they paint a, a simplistic picture that I can't connect with. But instead, we just say, what kind of truth can we find here? And, and we find it drawing us deeper into thinking about these truths. If, if you come at it with an open mind and open heart, and, and have been given the ears to hear. Amen. And that's what Scripture does, uh, not just in the parables of Christ, but in straight-up allegories. Uh, there are people who are said to be a type of Christ. Uh, the, uh, the high priest uh, from—oh, um, I just went blank on his name—Melchizedek. Mel- <laughs> There's the high priest uh, from back in Genesis, this mysterious wizard-like figure who appears from Salem and then vanishes until he reappears as a uh, comparison, sort of a, a type of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. There's the Apostle Paul's comparison to the rock from which uh, Moses gained water for the Israelites, and that rock is said to be a type of Christ in some way. So this idea definitely has biblical precedent, and that's the world that I guess John Bunyan, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, would have grown up in. You know, this, uh, this uh, Protestant or early Protestant uh, world, uh, the, the Puritans were running around uh, making books. Like, can you real quick just summarize like, John Bunyan, who he was, what led him to create this book? Right. Well, John, John Bunyan was a, a real cad as a young guy. Uh, there's a story about him uh, using such blasphemous, awful language in public that a, <laughs> that a prostitute took him aside and began to openly rebuke him. Uh, and, and the whole interaction ends with like a crowd just like beating the crap out of him. Uh, like he's, he's not he's nobody's idea of this is going to be the super famous preacher that's going to live in Bedford. And of course, the whole story of, of Christian is his story. Ultimately, uh, some, some women said to the, the local parson, uh, Gifford, this, there's this guy who needs to talk to you. He's at the end of himself. He's, he's thinking about even ending everything. He feels like he's hopeless and he's brought to faith. Uh, he becomes a really strong witness for, for the faith. Now he's living, of course, in England where there are laws about conformity and about un authorized preaching and meetings and uh the early baptists dealt with those uh to an extreme uh at different times and, and in different places you could you could be dragged into the public square and very legally there was this guy archbishop laud who was famous for uh his punishment was you would have ss for sower of sedition carved into your forehead 
like, you know, the end of Inglorious Bastards, you know, that's there forever. And they might cut off one of your ears. And if you'd been preaching in two different towns, they'd bring you to one and cut off one ear and bring you to the other and punish you for that one by cutting off the other. I mean, it's really, really horrible stuff. It didn't get as bad for Bunyan, but he was thrown in prison, Bedford Jail, uh, jail, G-A-O-L. I think that's charming. And weird spelling. there he wrote most of the Pilgrim's Progress. And he mostly kind of wrote it for himself. You know, he's not writing something that he thinks is going to be uh, this big runaway bestseller, although it almost immediately does become it once once it's uh, heavily edited and then published. Uh, when he writes it, he's not he's not writing in you know the accepted format of that day. The whole beginning of it is this just dreadful rhyme couplet poem apology for his format for the for the medium of allegory. Like here's why this is okay, and he goes through everything from stuff we've been talking about in the scriptures to you know Plato and his dialogues and everything, and 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 you know he he's basically saying it's it's all right that I'm doing this <laughs> because. It was a little odd and it connected with people right away. Uh, and he, of course, became the, the pastor there uh, in, in Bedford. He suffered for the faith. It's an interesting case study because he was told, you know, you can have, I, I don't remember the exact smaller number, but I think it was something like, we're going to send you to jail for four years um, if you promise never to preach again, or it's 12 years. And he was like, well, <laughs> I'm 100% preaching the moment I set foot out of here. So 12 years it is. And uh, he, he had a daughter who, who uh, was blind, who died while he was in prison. A lot of hardship, but he, he was faithful uh, to the end and uh, really a, a prolific writer. He wrote The Holy War, which I'm hoping to make kind of season three of this same podcast, The you know, Life and Death of Mr. Badman. He wrote, he wrote so much stuff. In his own non-allegorical autobiography, uh, Grace Abounding for the Chief of Sinners is also just super amazing stuff. Those are such puritanical titles, and, and that leads me to kind of a, a deconstruction then of that word uh, that we're using, we're referring to him as a Puritan. And especially, listeners, if you have heard this word used in the negative sense, uh, particularly by non-Christians or Christians who don't know any better, like, what do we mean by puritanical? Because a lot of people, I think, have this uh, imagination in their mind of you know, a bunch of uh, you know 1950s uh, stern pastors enforcing the bad rules at the church that you don't like. You know, tiny town of Footloose. Yes, exactly. And in this case, though, uh, the folks that you might call puritanical are not puritans at all. And it is Bunyan and his allies who are the puritans. They're the ones who are having these unbiblical rules brought down on their heads. Yeah, I, I think I would make a distinction between the word puritanical, which has really become... That's, that's uh, a negative one, like fundamentalist, yeah. yeah. I mean, the word puritan can up. be just an adjective and, and I, you know, parse it out however you want. He was a, a Baptist. It wasn't until 1885 or so when uh, it was suggested by by some biographers that he might have been a, a Congregationalist or Pedobaptist of some kind. He, he was a Baptist preacher. Uh, if you know the history... The Baptist, I mean, some will tell you the first Baptist was John the Baptist, and there's always been Baptists. There's a uh, red but, line going all the way back, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't know if you've Trail heard. of blood. That's right. Uh, there's about one group of, of the, like, 40 groups that people uh, want to put the red dot on that I would want anything to do with. Um, but uh, the the idea that we came from, you know, the earliest Christian tradition is is not true. We came out of the the Anglican Church, which is in... I mean, read the 39 articles. It's in the Reformed tradition. Out of that comes Puritans who want to purify it, become more Calvinistic and less kind of high church. Uh, And then out of them come separatists and nonconformists. Out of those Puritan separatists, 
uh, come independent churches and, and finally Baptists. So we are in the Puritan tradition. Uh, and so he is in a sense a Puritan. I mean, even, even Spurgeon, who's as Baptist as they come, uh, I've been teaching his, his version of the Westminster Catechism, the Shorter Catechism, based on the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith for, geez, we're at like two and a half years now into this thing. And he calls it a Puritan catechism. You know, he, there, there's a certain uh, draw to that notion of Puritanism amongst Baptists from the very beginning. And, you know, the, the idea that they didn't love, you know, they didn't drink, they, they, they only had sex for procreation, they didn't celebrate is nonsense. They didn't celebrate Christmas right. because they wanted to put away all popishness, et cetera, et cetera. They didn't celebrate things they thought were problematic, but they loved to drink. They, they celebrated, uh, you know, the, the act of marriage and, and all of the good gifts of God. They, they, they would feast. They, would, they, they were not what we paint them to be, these, these miserable, drab people. Well, let me ask you this about the Puritan culture of his day, because I haven't studied this very much. When he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, was that kind of revolutionary to have Christian fiction at the time, or, or was fiction, because my understanding, or at least my impression of the Reformation and everything around that time, is that you know C- Christian art w- was just not as widely accepted, and, and Christian fiction, by extension, wasn't. And I, I see that kind of trend today, like, you know, we've talked about the young, restless and reformed. It, it seems like fiction is held a little bit at arm's length. But tell me if I'm wrong about that, about not only today, but but more so in Bunyan's time. Yeah, well, you know, we were talking about uh, we were talking about Peretti before we started recording. Right. And uh, how how I, I love Peretti so deeply. And I think there's an interesting allegory thing going on in one of his books. Oh, else, absolutely. It's another. definitely been influenced by at least the uh, Christian battle with Apollyon. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, all of his stuff, I think, is very Bunyan-esque. But like he was originally published. You know who was his original publisher? It was Crossway. Crossway. Yes. And now, I mean, that's the last thing they would do. Now we want to allow people to kind of reinvent and redetermine what their, their mission statements are, whatever, if they want. But like, you know, they would never come out with this like very, uh, um, fantastical, uh, fiction. There's this novel that that's got some truths in it, but, but they're not straightforward. Um, they're, they're going to be like, here's another, uh, practical theology. Here's right. another Christian living title. Here's another aspect of, you know, the limited atonement or something. Uh, so I think you're right today. And certainly he was breaking new ground. He didn't invent, obviously, allegory, but but he wasn't riding any kind of wave or jumping on a bandwagon. He was like push starting that locomotive uh, himself. And, you know, there are uh, quite a few copycats who come after. He was like the Tarantino of his day. And then like the rest of his life was the 90s where everyone was trying to. There's even a Catholic version uh, where that everything's changed a little bit, you know, like, um, he's not oh, that's relieved funny. of his burden by looking to the cross alone, but he's baptized and it disappears. And then huh. it starts growing again. He's got to deal with it again. You know, so like everyone saw what he was doing and it became very influential, but yes, yeah, certainly there, I don't think there's a category for Christian fiction until like the sixties or seventies, right? I mean, you have <laughs> the occasional, you have your Ben-Hur, you have your, you know, the stuff that that's, spiritual and, and religious in nature, but there's no industry. That's for sure. So by the way, you mentioned earlier, the separatists, uh, that is how we got the first Thanksgiving, by the way. So in large extent, our culture has been influenced by the Puritans, but whether separatists or otherwise, uh, the reformers, 
uh, and Pilgrim's Progress. Like uh, even if, as you mentioned earlier, the book somehow would tragically vanish from the scene, uh, it leaves behind quite the legacy. Uh, there's even a secular publication called Vanity Fair. I mean, it's it's everywhere right. once you start to look. And um, I've always disliked the name of that publication because if you know your original Bunyan, Vanity Fair is not a great place to be. I suppose they think that it's uh, all, all rascally and rebellious to name their publication. Vanity Fair, it's it's vain. It's vapid. It's completely flippant. It's just all the worldliness, like all the stuff that people rightly think that Puritans shunned, but Puritans shunned them because there is no point to it. You go to Vanity meaningless, Fair. Meaningless, meaningless. Meaningless, yes, exactly. And, of course, there's a rather famous, um, I'll, I'll say it again, cancellation that takes place in Vanity Fair. And I remember when I read the book originally, uh, it was... I think it was a fifth grade reader from, I think it was Bob, actually Bob Jones University Press. It was illustrated. It was a uh, very well adapted, I think, for the reading level. And that was my first exposure to Pilgrim's Progress. And of course, it, it cut out some of the nuance, I'm sure, just to keep it focused on the uh, the target audience. But I really enjoyed it. And I remember those moments, like the the battle with, you know, the boss battle with Apollyon uh, and the Valley of the Shadow of Death and Vanity Fair, like some of my original exposures to these fantastical images whether allegorical or not we are influenced by those today and you mentioned frank peretti being influenced i've no doubt that even the greats c.s lewis and J.R.R. tolkien you know the ones who didn't do straight allegory like that inferior pilgrim's progress you know no doubt though they were familiar with the story because we can be reasonably sure that their households may have been the ones who had a copy of the Bible, as you mentioned, and a copy of Pilgrim's Progress right alongside of it. Yeah. Is there anything other than the labeling of characters more straightforward? Is there anything less allegorical about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Not really, right? I mean, you still have the whole meta narrative kind of boiled into this. Uh, I guess the fact that, no, never mind. As I say, the fact that the, the Pevensey kids live in a world where they know who Jesus is. But I mean, so does Bunyan. People are praying. People are going to church. Uh, all of that uh, Christian and faithful both know of Jesus. You have kind of a cake and eat it to uh, allegory there as well, where, you know, and it gets problematic in a couple places where they're, you know, these sheep, these literal sheep with white wool are the sheep for which Jesus died. And you're like, hold on. Isn't Christian like the sheep for whom Jesus died? Can we have both <laughs> at the al same time? It's allegoryception. That's <laughs> what's going right. on there. Maybe we mentioned yeah. that in the podcast. Like, wait a minute, what, what's going on? You know, the world building uh, does um, strain the limits sometimes in the, in Pilgrim's Progress. But so does so does Lewis, right? I mean, y y when you when you start thinking through ramifications of hold on, so this lion is Jesus, and you know him by a different name in your world, and blah blah. I mean, like you can't think any of this. You can't think Inception through that. We went and saw Tenet. We drove all the way to Ohio because uh, our governor closed our movie theaters. And uh, we went and watched it. And then all the way home, six-hour drive home, uh, we discussed it. And when you talk about anything that long, even when it is very brilliantly, carefully, painstakingly put apart. together. Yeah. Yeah. It really and, does. And you can't, if, if you can't enjoy something for what it is without going, ooh, I can destroy that. I can pick it apart. I can pull out a thread until there's nothing left then you don't deserve good things anyway. You know, don't read The Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah. Well, Tolkien said, I believe the uh, exact quote is, he despised allegory in all its forms. So you got to think that Tolkien had issues with maybe the parish back home where they made him read Pilgrim's Progress <laughs> and fill out a quiz, you know, and then compare himself to this allegorical character. 
And so, you know, Tolkien became the rebel and made up languages and Elvish and such. Yeah, but he would have read the crappy Catholic version. Oh, that's so. true. That's because he, because he grew up Catholic, yes. Uh, where Lewis, I mean, Lewis, I don't think was opposed to allegory, but the word that he used for the Chronicles of Narnia and Ashland in particular was supposal. And yet even that falls apart if you push it too hard, because as you mentioned, uh, Zach, uh, if you turn Aslan or Jesus into some kind of a shapeshifter, you know, appearing across the multiverse in these various forms, if you took that seriously, it would upend the incarnation. Jesus Christ now right. is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is locked in as both God and man. Uh, that is the mystery of the incarnation. He did not shed his corporeal form on the way up at the ascension. He is sitting at the right hand of God, and he has the scars from the crucifixion to this day. He will always be that way. He's not going to morph into a lion or, you know, uh, some other kind of alien creature for a parallel dimension. I think it's fun to imagine those things, but ultimately they do become allegory or, or else you are taking this stuff way too seriously. I'm sorry, there is no Aslan, but Aslan does represent in literature a supposal of Christ. At the same time, though, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah Absolutely. in metaphorical language. And so, yeah, whatever you want to do with that. It's almost like when you talk about the Trinity, like when I teach on the Trinity, I always say, listen, for the next half an hour, this is a heresy free room. It means you can say what you want and you're probably going to say something that's heretical and it's okay. We're just, we're hashing these things out to better understand them. The only way to understand them is to talk about them. So anytime you use, I mean, there's the really, really problematic uh, teaching methods that are either modalism or tritheism. That's you know, you modalism, the... Patrick. So we just had St. Patrick's <laughs> yeah, Topical, yeah. had to say it. That's Arianism, me... Patrick. At church, these kids gave me these uh, three leaf clover things they made, and, and I, I hung them on my door, and a guy walked by and said, oh, that's modalism. I was like, ah, you're miserable. These kids are so sweet. I'm just going to hang these <laughs> up. But, but like, if you take if you take any of those, the three-leaf clover, or, or you know, water, steam, ice, or, you know, egg, yolk, whatever, uh, or, you know, the Cartwright family, or whatever, you, they're always going to fall short. But if you don't talk about it in any terms, isn't that worse? <laughs> like, if you don't think about it, if you don't use the brain and the the curiosity God gave you to try and further better understand who God is, who he would have us be, what struggles we have in this world. And I think that's what Bunyan's doing. And he did it masterfully to the point where I discover new aspects of it. I mean, I'm a not a hard cessationist, but I certainly don't believe this is, you know, the, the next book of the Bible. It's fallible. There are issues with it. But I do believe that to some degree, there is inspiration, not not in the God-breathed uh, and inerrant sense, but that he was in sync, that the Spirit was working through him when he wrote this stuff down, that that 350 years later, people are still going, oh my gosh, yeah, that was that was so meaningful. I mean, do you, does anyone think 350 years from now, someone's going to read Left Behind and say, oh yeah, that's, that touched me. Oh, shots fired. Uh, I, you know, <laughs> maybe, but like only, no, cause they'll only all be the raptured. Pizza, by that's true. That's true. <laughs> well, I'll be, I'll be raptured and we'll get up to heaven and then, uh, Tim LaHaye will have rewritten the series and it'll be much, much better and more biblical. Cause I'm, I'm pretty sure Tim LaHaye, despite believing in the rapture, uh, and not going up at the rapture himself is in heaven now. Uh, and he's, uh, he's looking back and, you know, getting, uh, getting an upgrade to his end times belief. And I thank God then for Bunyan uh, that he was willing to take that risk and do something that no one had done before uh, and, and write such an extended allegory with that level of nuance. And, and again, like I'm even learning in the middle of talking with you about this, kind of learning all over again, 
how much depth there is to the Pilgrim's Progress. Like listening to your adaptation, I'm kind of rediscovering it. You know, it's like those people who say, oh, yeah, I read Narnia way back when I was a kid, but I haven't read it in some time. And then uh, we just did a book quest for The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, just a couple of uh, months ago in January in the Lorehaven Guild. And we have people going, wow, this is really great. I used to enjoy this when I was a kid, but now it's taken on an entirely new dimension. And that's now how I get to feel about Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, just, that's exactly what I was trying to do with it. Good. So that's awesome to hear. Yes. Well, I'm enjoying it a lot more even uh, than I thought I would. And part of that is because I, like others, and we've already touched on this, have this stigma about allegory. I may have overcorrected from allegory is the cheap stuff. It's not uh, multicolored. Uh, it does not capture the realism, the complexity of the Christian or human experience. Uh, it's the cheap stuff. You just need to know that some guys are good guys and some guys are bad guys. And of course, there are many Christians who believe, unlike in Bunyan's day, apparently, that allegory, like Pilgrim's Progress, is the only way to go. So that's the only acceptable Christian fantasy is if everything has <laughs> an easy allegorical solution. But as you've pointed out, not yeah. even Pilgrim's Progress has that easy allegorical one-to-one correspondence each time. Uh, things get messy when you talk about the sheep or the role of the law or things like that. You know, we get down to people who won't show their kids VeggieTales, not because it's, you know, deism or something, but because if we tell them that tomatoes can talk and then later on they find out they can't, then they're going to think we were lying about Jesus, too. And I don't, I don't even. They don't like to talk to tomatoes. (laughs) It's clearly not for them. I don't get that that aspect of, I don't think that aspect of fundamentalism even follows from the rest of it. Like I can get when you tell me, um, you know, wine is a mocker and strong drink a brawler and he who's taken by them. I'm maybe messing up the proverb a little bit is a fool or something. So we don't drink. And you go, okay. I mean, there's nuance in the scriptures, a little wine for your stomach. Jesus makes wine, but I understand what you're doing. I get it. I get that you're going hardcore on, on this stuff and being really hardcore about it. When you say even the guys who are super like second commandment violation, and they'll say like a painting of Jesus violates the second commandment. I think I can refute that easily, but I get what you're doing. I understand hundred percent that you're saying, I don't want to toe this line. I want to get as far away as possible from it because I love this God and that's coming out of a good place. But when you get to, you know, we don't go to the movie houses and I think the, the sister of that is we don't even read books that are quote unquote worldly, which means they're not the Bible. You know, I think about on the office, the, the three books you're going to bring to the desert island and uh, Angela says the Bible and, and, and Jim's like, nice. What else? A purpose driven life. Okay. The third one. No. <laughs> I think there's a, it's a softened version of that. When you say, oh, yeah. I'll read, I'll read widely. Uh, I'll even read maybe realistic fiction, but if you're going to start getting weird and you're going to have aliens in it, or you're going to have weird creatures, or you're going to have some other world that doesn't exist, that's world. What? I, it does not follow from the scriptures, which is just so chock full of otherworldly things. And we, we've turned angels into chubby babies with stubby wings, basically pulling a pagan image and throwing it into our own iconography when we really ought to show them being all like blinking eyes and beating wings and like horrific. And like, there's, there's so much more that we could mine truth wise. And, and God has given us these imaginations. I just don't understand the straight line between I take the Bible super seriously and therefore I have to 
fence in my imagination. I don't, I don't get it at all. Yeah. That, that's something I've been very worried about in recent years is that, um, although I think people are a lot more open to fiction now than maybe 10 or 20 years ago, there, there can often be this suspicion about it. And sometimes that comes from the church. Sometimes that comes from the culture. Um, you know, it is fiction, something worthwhile of our time, of our emotional investment, of our intellectual investment, you know, like you were saying earlier, why not just write a theology book? Cause then you can just say plainly what it is. Um, I, I was following this thread recently where someone was saying, you know, we, we really got to watch out for how, uh, worldly, uh, ideologies advance through the heart. They, they bypass the mind. They go straight to the feelings. And um, they kind of shut off your brain and they, they go, they activate your emotions. And before you know it, you know, you're buying into this, um, the secular belief system that, that takes you away from truth and it takes you away from uh, God's word. And I'm like, <clears throat> well, that, yes, that, that can certainly happen. But, um, but dare I say, like, th- that is a tool that Christians can use as well. Like, like we can tell stories that address the heart because Hey, we see that in scripture. We see the prophet Nathaniel uh, mm, confronting yeah. King David with a story that cuts straight to his heart. And when David's, you know, about the rich man and the ewe lamb and, uh, and David says, you know, arrest that man. And then uh, the prophet says, you are the man. Oh, King George, you yeah. are that man. <laughs> Free plugs for VeggieTales today. Gosh, I do love VeggieTales. <laughs> the ducky as Bathsheba. Now that's just a comparison. Bath, that's that's Bathsheba. right. There's I just an allegory got that now. for you. I just got that right now. And I just got that right after you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot believe. Wow. Uh, it should have been like a toy sheep or something, though. I guess a rubber ducky makes more this sense. This episode is Bathsheba. sponsored by Big Idea Productions. <laughs> that guy who's become so like controversial. Right? Oh, I don't know how. Okay, now I this actually is solid, uh, fairly. Th- that's kind of an example, though, is that I think, okay, I'm just going to name him Phil Vischer, okay? Right. Love you, Phil, yeah, if you're listening. Dude. Yeah, if we, we want to. But uh, he had more power when he was able to engage at uh, the level of imagination. And now he's yeah. gone more overt, more nonfiction level. I think that that is a loss of influence there. Uh, ultimately, any author who suspects deep down that the imagination is not as powerful uh, is going to lose influence. Like, well, if fiction doesn't work. Uh, it's kind of frivolous. You know, it's basically Vanity Fair. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to be practical. I'm going to be nonfiction. Yeah. Like, you may have some influence there uh maybe even the donations roll in more but i think ultimately a story with or without straight up allegory like bunions has a lot more influence because god has made us creatures not just of heads but of hearts that's right that's where i was going like it it's not like jesus said love god with all your mind period and that was it (laughs) (laughs) right and i i think too often that is the uh uh that is the view a lot of Christians can have, you know, kind of sola cerebra, like that all we are is thinking and thoughts and logic. But even that, I mean, the mind is what comes up with these amazing uh, worlds that we we can build and things. So, you know, I'm going to tell you about a guy I met 20 years ago when I was, uh, before I was in ministry, I was, I was in seminary. I was at a, a church where we were, I was teaching a class and this dude, he'd been a Christian forever. He said, we were, we were talking about the parables. And he said, well, when the man really did this, when he really walked down the road and got attacked, and I said, well, hold on a minute. I mean, like, obviously the guy didn't, no guy really did. Oh, one of those. Okay. And he said, well, no, if Jesus isn't a liar, then every single parable he told must be something that happened before. 
And I was like, you, I, I, are there people who think like you? Yes. Yes, there <laughs> Which, are. <laughs> then, by the way, I, I thought was kind of funny years later, just recently, um, by the way, to, to jump from one, um, from LaHaye to Jenkins, but, but, but his son, um, I've been loving the chosen. Yes. Yes. And, uh, he had it where the guy really had like done that. <laughs> and I said to my wife, Oh, maybe Phil was right. Uh, because, uh, that uh, was based on a real event in, in the world of the chosen, but I think they were just being funny and, and playful there. <laughs> uh, and by the way, I kind of was also inspired by that. Like the fact that people who had read the Bible a whole bunch, I don't think I, it'll have anywhere near a tiny, tiny fraction of the effect of something as amazing as a chosen. Let's break from our pilgrimage for just a moment to reintroduce our second sponsor for this episode. Once again, it be us Lorehaven, specifically the Lorehaven guild. That is our exclusive Discord server where we engage in monthly book quests through the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and etc. that we can find. Right now, if you're listening to this episode during release week, we are nearly concluded about uh, two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through our current selection for March 2022. It is the late Lonnie Forbes' Mesoamerican-inspired fantasy novel, The Seventh Son, Lots of great discussion in the guild about that story. This story is not an allegory. Uh, Lonnie Forbes plays it straight in this world of magical gifts and underworld and even human sacrifice. And all throughout, though, you could call it an allegory, I think. A, a very clear division between law, human law in this society, and the grace in this world. It is ascribed to the gods, so it calls for discernment. This is a story that includes a pantheon of Mesoamerican-style gods, uh, but also a very clear exploration of grace, uh, even while the people who follow the laws are coming up with some pretty convincing arguments. So this has been a great story to read among mature Christian believers, but you can only get there by joining the Lorehaven Guild by subscribing to Lorehaven. Just go to lorehaven.com, fill out your email address is all you need there at the pop-up form to get the welcome with your super secret invite. I can announce our Next selection for the April 2022 book quest, uh, starting, I think, Monday, April the 4th, we will explore The Green Ember. That's the book by S.D. Smith, a previous guest of Fantastical Truth as well. I believe Elijah David, our Lorehaven writer, will be leading that quest. So it is his debut. This is a great story. If you've heard that episode, uh, following kind of an allegory, but not completely, of uh, two rabbit children who are separated from their family and must join a resistance movement to look forward to a day when the wood is mended by the king. Great story to follow, definitely more suitable for younger readers, but with plenty of challenging elements. Just join the Lorehaven Guild in order to start reading that book and prepare for the April book quest for the Green Ember. That notion, like it, just giving something a different spin episodically releasing it so that people consume it a little more and a little more and start to get into it. That, that was kind of my, my thought. Um, but like, yeah, that, that idea that if, if you're telling, if, if it's not real and you say that it, it happened, even if you start it with once upon a time, you're a liar. That's the same people then who in the book of revelation, unless there literally is a fire breathing dragon that's coming, then the apostle John is a liar. No, people convey truths in different ways. So the poetry, the Bible is not literally true. It's literarily true. Yes. And all so the genre also mm -hmm. all of our genres of, of books, including different genres of fiction, also should be allowed to be literarily true. My wife and I have both run into uh, negative reviews 
uh, on our books. I remember, so I wrote a book called uh, The Last Con. It's a simultaneously, like, almost like a Templar's uh, conspiracy story that takes place in the uh, 18th century and a modern day, like, Ocean's Eleven heist type movie. And, and so it kind of blended together. And in it, there is this fictional device where he keeps the guy who's uh, being convicted of a sin keeps seeing this old man holding this dirtier and dirtier rag. Uh, and at the end, he discovers, I'm not going to say what he discovers, but it, it becomes very allegorical, I'll say. And I had a, a number of people say, this is dangerous. You got to be careful blending together stuff that's in the Bible and stuff that you're just coming up with. And I thought, well, no, that's the whole point of what I do with, with my fiction. Or I remember when I went and got some books signed by, by Peretti uh, at Cornerstone College when I was a student there, I, I was really excited to meet him. And somebody in front of me said, you know, you mention uh, in your books uh, prayer power that, that gives strength to the angels. I was wondering what the, the verse, the scripture oh, verse is Oh, poor Peretti. That. He's been getting questions like that throughout his entire <laughs> career. Could... I think they broke him. Dude, his tone said everything. He uh... goes, that's a fictional device. And, and kind of finished shining his name and hand it over. And I'm like, oh, this guy, he's just trying to convey truths in, in innovative ways. And, and, and he found out people were actually praying these prayers against yeah, territory. Because they didn't understand fiction. Divine the names of demons yeah, and stuff. That's just, that's, that's unfortunate. And he had a lot friendlier crowd that Peretti did. Uh, he was actually the keynote speaker at our Realmakers Conference uh, last year uh, in St. Louis. Uh, he's, he's great. And there, you know, the... If there were any issues with the fans, it wasn't people trying to take him to task. We're talking about prayer power, you know, coming up with this, you know, effective, uh, you know, video game point system uh, for empowering the forces of righteousness. Uh, if anything, people were more fans, you know, like, hey, can we ever get a this present darkness, you know, tabletop game? Mm. You know, like, well, I don't know. I guess we can talk about that. You know, he just that was not a bad know, impression. Very. <laughs> <laughs> I, lo I love like this. I, we need to Complacent have stupor. professional Peretti impersonators. It could be the evangelical version of Elvis impersonators. Just so, so distinctive. <laughs> yeah. It it just reminds me of that scene in Galaxy Quest where uh, Tim Allen is you know signing the autographs yes. and the fanboy comes up. He's like, oh, in episode you know thirty five, you know, television yeah. show. It's just and he like TV. tries it's to fake. quiz him about yeah <laughs> about inconsistencies or whatever. And it's which was Shatner and Harrison Ford both responding like, yeah, I don't care. Yeah. I don't care about this as much. Uh, evangelicals have their Thermians who are taking everything seriously that we put into our yeah. fiction, and they believe that it's all real. We need your help. Yeah, it's just, it's something that I think humans are going to do, and it's just something that Christians need to learn to deal with, uh, hopefully by grounding our view of the imagination in the Bible, and I think by the example of stories like Pilgrim's Progress, you know, pointing out their nuances and adapting it into forms like this audio drama-ish podcast. I'm not sure how you describe that. Let's move then just into talking more specifically about uh, the podcast itself. Uh, what is great and challenging about adapting this for audio drama? You've already mentioned going back and fetching all of Faithful's backstory and integrating that into the main narrative. So instead of just sticking with Christian's uh, point of view, you're switching back and forth, more of a third-person uh, viewpoint there. Uh, you're integrating that into the main narrative and finding the parallels. But I noticed, too, uh, that you've also... I mean, they're not speaking in the King's English necessarily here. You know, We're keeping words like, steadfast and Godspeed and great words that we really should not be letting go of as people. And what I also appreciate, I need to tell you this, is that to a large extent, you are playing it straight. 
you're not roasting Pilgrim's Progress here. There are very few moments, very few moments of self-awareness, like about the name of the city of destruction. But they're so subtle that I can't tell if they're from the original or just a, a slight hint to the audience that, hey, we know this is allegory and some of the names can be kind of funny if you think about them a lot, but you're playing it straight. This is an earnest adaptation. And that makes it, to me, more immersive. I'm not Mr. Cool Christian, who's grown up past Pilgrim's Progress and allegory. I'm listening to this with humility to receive the story. Instead of dragging Bunyan into my world, I am more able, I think, to enter his world. Is that mm. how you intended it going in? And what are some of the other challenges that you found in, in adapting this series? Yeah, well, that is exactly, I love hearing that from you. That is exactly what I was trying to, to do was we have to acknowledge a little bit, right? And I think even like a little bit of like, well, haven't you thought it was weird that the city is called destruction? And she says, yeah, but I mean, cities are called all sorts of strange things. I, I know, I know the story behind it. I don't remember what it is, but you know, you're yeah. a little <laughs> that, literal here. that works. That totally works though. Yeah, yeah, and, and that happens today. You know, like we have these truths and people are like, yeah, but that's old and we don't really remember what that's from. Uh, and, and uh, you know, you mentioned my my uh, background and doing a lot of satire and things. And, uh, you know, I've written novels that were a little more serious that also, um, you know, almost any time I get a five-star review, it'll say, it's also very funny and I appreciated that. Like, uh, I, I, I was just preaching on Ash Wednesday and I'm like, why is people, people are laughing because I can't help but sometimes you know, funerals, whatever. But the, the challenge was, yeah, not to do this tongue in cheek, not to do it, uh, in this sort of knowing way with a wink, because when you get to, for example, this guy, um, the, the last one that I came out with is he gets to the cross and his burden falls off. And so he suddenly feels lighter and he looks back and he sees his burden going end over end, falling down Calvary and it disappears into the tomb. And, and like, if you're being cute about these things, that's blasphemous. Yes. Like, if there aren't things that are above snark in, in your worldview, I feel bad for, for, for these people who like, even, I even know I have like fellow ministers who will, they'll make like these quips and jokes about the Lord's supper and things. And I'll be like, that's no that's the body and blood of not Jesus. Not the time, Don't not the that. place. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, and so I'm trying to, um, you know, where there is, and you got to make things a little bit funny and you got to make things a little light sometimes, or it would just get overwhelming because there is, this is what people don't remember. They think of the Pilgrim's Progress as a kid's story and they think of it as cute and light. And it is so dark for so much of the time. So I have a thing coming up in three uh, episodes. It's called, I have two different chapters. I'm going to be vignettes. And in other, in other words, instead of having faithful and Christian saying, hey, have you heard of this? Hey, have you heard of this? Hey, have you heard of this? I just tell these stories and I delve a little deeper into them. And I'm not the first to do that. Alexander White also did a similar thing with a lot of these characters. Um, but I noticed that it was six little stories from all of them, but one taken directly from the Pilgrim's Progress. I have a, a card game in the town of Fair Speech that I just invented whole, whole cloth. The rest of them are all taken. You know, it's um, Mr. Little Faith. It's uh, Mr. Linger After Lust. It's all, and every one of them is like dark and depressing. And I'm like, I got to do something here to make this whole, you know, 40 minutes of podcast, not just make everyone want to kill themselves. This is bad. <laughs> like, so there, there's, I think, uh, a, a undercurrent of, of seriousness to it that you can tap into 
And once you do that and then give yourself a little leeway to here and there uh, create, and there are funny characters, like the introduction, the, the cold open introduction of Obstinate and Pliable as this pair where it's essentially George McFly and uh, Biff Tannen, right? And, and one of them is always taking advantage of the other. That, that's kind of already there. This idea that one of the, why are obstinate and pliable together of all people? Because in real life, a overbearing guy is going to have like a, an easy, you know, it's like uh, Scott Farkas and, and Grover, what's his name or whatever. Yes. Uh, from on the, Christmas, Christmas. Like they, they just yeah. come, to, you got a toady, you come together and that, that lends itself to humor, but you have to be careful with that kind of stuff when it comes to the sacred. I do. I think I, I, I don't like, even when we were talking, I don't remember if we'd started recording or not, but we were talking about some other parodies of like Left Behind and stuff. And you got to be careful with all that. Like, because at the end of the day, the second coming of Christ isn't funny. And at, at the end of the day, I, I think microchips and all this stuff is it, it, it gets a little goofy and it lends itself maybe to some fun, some satire. But even what what they've done with those stories uh, where it's about judgment and it's about sin and salvation and, 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 and damnation. It's not really funny. You know, it, you, you can say, I, I find surface level humor in the delivery of something or other, or in a, a quirk or a foible in this right, this kind of writing. But I, I, I want to steer very clear of, of being flippant about holy things. That's the word, flippant there. And, and another word that comes to my mind is self-awareness. Some stories are so self-aware that they become recursive and they undermine their own foundation for existing. I think a lot of people, for example, have often wrongly accused the Marvel movies of being so self-aware that they're not serious. I mean, I hang out with a lot of DC fans who make those accusations. I think that is occasionally true, but not as much as we think. But where it is true, where superhero movie, uh, there's a character who's saying, none of this makes any sense, you know, commenting on the ridiculousness of the situation. That does draw me out of the story. It lowers the stakes. We're dealing with a potentially right. world-ending event and you were over here cracking jokes. Hot tub time machine. Yeah. Well, I'll take your word for it. I, I was thinking of uh, Marvel's Avengers movies. I like. Yeah, the... no, I'm saying they, they reference hot tub time oh, machine. I, oh, do in, they? Okay. End game. When, when he's saying, wait a minute, oh, that's not how time right. travel yes. works. And then they'd list all these movies. And you go, okay, you just, you just listed like nine movies that yes. combined have like a hundred Marvel movie actors in them. And you did it for fun to create this sort of infinite, you know, Microsoft Excel loop that, that creates an, a funny error, but you also, yeah, you just yoinked me out of the whole thing. Right. And when you're a Christian looking at the role of stories, I, I think the self-awareness in stories ought to lead to some kind of growth. I mean, the Christian's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If the flippant moment or the self-awareness or the meta humor does not in some way point back to that goal, it's really at best pointless and and yet and it can also become uh, in a way sinful because you're not taking the story seriously you're not uh, entering the world of the story where at least from the viewpoint of these characters uh, the city really is going to be destroyed and it is the foolish residents of the city who are quipping about that rather than taking the warning seriously to flee from the wrath to come or if you're in a marvel or dc movie uh, to wait for the superheroes to come in and fight the villains and save the city I think if, if we're dealing with destruction, if we are facing a wrath in some way in the story, I much prefer it if the story takes that seriously. 
Yeah. And, and you can also try to pop in with humor at the wrong moments and say, you know, it's getting too dark. We need levity and go, okay, now that didn't land. Uh, that, that happens. Uh, I've, in fact, a lot of what, when I've had actual editors, uh, at, uh, uh, major publishers go through my stuff, a lot of what they remove is this isn't the moment for this. This is funny, but this isn't the moment for this, you know? So you got to self-police on that stuff if you're not going to be edited. Folks, we just had an author praise their editors from a major Christian publishing house. I just want to point that out, that it seems to have been a compliment there uh, on their oh, behalf. Oh, yeah. Oh, good, I had good a lady that did um, more than one of my books, LB, and she was an absolute treasure. I mean, the people... I. I, I don't get the uh, the adversarial relationship that a lot of authors have with their editors. When you do something like what I'm doing now, now my, my wife, is, she works in Christian publishing and has for 20 some years. She works for, for Baker Publishing Group. She'll sometimes go through and edit things if I say this needs to be tightened up, but she didn't have time to do a chapter every other week. And so I'm having to go through and I'm feeling the the lack of that. You know, I, I, I've even like listened to the final mix on something and gone, Gosh, I used the same word twice in a row in this really uh, obvious and distracting way. I wish I had an editor. So you were saying a minute ago about Pilgrim's Progress being really dark, and you you feel this urge to kind of lighten it up. It reminds me of this uh, interview I was listening to recently with Rod Dreher, the uh, author of The Benedict Option and Live Not by Lies, and uh, you know he interviews all these uh, Soviet dissidents and people that survived communism and and stayed faithful and and had thriving families and, you know, miss all this persecution. And he's going into a lot of detail about just some real, real trials that these people went through. And the, uh, the interviewer is like, well, you know, we don't want to focus too much on, uh, the, the bad stuff. You know, how, how can you, uh, you know, bring some light into this and kind of cheer <laughs> us up a little bit. And I'm like, that is such, you know, that is such a typical impulse that we have in the West. Like we're so yeah. used to being triumphant. I, I think it's kind of a post-World War II mindset, but you look through much of our history and it's very much a struggle, very much suffering. And I don't just mean history of, of the U S but the church, you know, the, the church has had a deep history of suffering. And I think that's something we have to reclaim because, Hey, we might be headed for some really bad times very soon in this country. And, um, I, I that's what I like about Pilgrim's progress is that it really leans into that. It leans into the honesty of, Jesus promised to us in this world, you will have trouble. But what I want to ask you is, you know, what you mentioned a little while ago about there being many different editions of uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And which one is, would you say is your favorite one to read? You can get a hold easily of the original text. It's even on CCEL, I think. I I, I like to read it in the archaic language. I've always loved reading Puritans. I love reading you know, Richard Baxter, Thomas Watson, give, give me anybody who writes sentences that are longer than my paragraphs. And I'm, and I'm happy. <laughs> I like, uh, I have probably 20 of these on my tablet, Um, and I love the ones with different, uh, eras of like woodcuts and illustrations and things. I have a, the, my favorite one to read. I rarely read because I'm afraid to read it. It's a Leatherbound uh, volume of the complete works of Bunyan. It's from 1871 or something. A friend of mine gave it to me as a gift, and it has beautiful artwork in it, uh, beautiful illuminated typography and stuff. Mm. It has a uh, literally like a fold out facsimile of his will in his own hand. Oh, wow. um, 
just amazing. And when you read the original with, you know, I mean, there's, there's stuff in it that I, I would probably not point your average person to the original. I'd point them to one that, that was almost like an amplified version. You get those mm-hmm. where they have uh, archaic words are ex- kind of explained or an alternative word is given in, in parentheses. Don't necessarily go to like a modernized version. I have a couple modernized versions where someone tries to like half adapt it into a, a more modern novel, you know, like uh, evangelist smirked and uh, scratched his chin, you know, like sticking these things in here and there. And you, what you wind up doing is sort of clearing up some of the problematic or confusing passages, but simultaneously robbing it of its majesty. Mm. And I'd rather keep more of the majesty and maybe even have to. There's a lot of archaic dictionaries you can download and websites that will tell you the old meanings of these words. I'd rather do a little legwork, um, you know, once a chapter than than lose the majesty of. I, there, there are probably every week there are two or three sentences I lift directly out of, you know, directly from Bunyan's pen because they're so perfect, you know, and and I don't want to lose those uh, when I'm reading it either. It's just amazing to me that, you know, this modern obsession with erasing the past and just acting, you know, just having what C.S. Lewis calls a chronological snobbery, you know, acting like the present moment is all that matters and what's happened before doesn't. And then you read, you read Bunyan and you're like, what? (laughs) How do I make sense of that? You know, our attention spans are so short, our, like you said, our sentences are so short and, and often we're just talking in emojis or whatever. And you read stuff like this and it, it just, it, it's really something you have to chew on. And, um, I, I think it very much challenges that kind of microwave instant dinner mindset that we have so often of just give me it now, uh, where you have to actually work at something. Don't you think it. that's going away though a little bit? Like I have a hope little bit. for the future yeah. and like Quibi failed, right? Whereas that's true. A lot yeah. of people Pandemic killed it. <laughs> uh, listened to all of serial season one in a day and a half. Right? right. I mean, like, I think we're I think we're regaining our ability. Although I heard a guy on NPR who's a U of M University of Michigan uh, uh, professor who said he used to read War and Peace once a year and he can't do it anymore. Oh, he, wow. He, he's mm. lost that ability as a scholar. He can't he can't do it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's something to that. I, I can't really get deep into a book unless my phone is out of reach. I mean, that's just the honest truth. And I've been going more to, um, physical books now because I, well, first of all, I can't even read anything on like a smart device, but even on my Kindle, it's just too easy to flip to other books. Once I get tired or I, you know, hit a challenging or a a slightly boring chapter, it's just too easy to go. Nope. You know, Mm -hmm. abandon ship. So, uh, there is something to that, but you're right. I mean, the, who is the highest paid, uh, or the, the most watched a person in news media, it's Joe Rogan who does three hour interviews. Yeah. And you know, whereas uh, corporate news tries to reduce everything to a two minute soundbite. Yep. So, yep. And, um, and we we're, I think we're getting it's sick dying. Of that. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, that, that industry is completely dying. So I, I think you're right. I think there is hope. Um, and, and maybe this is uh, one of those ways that can kind of reclaim that. Um, uh, but like we've said, I, I hope that it, um, you know, that this resurgence of Pilgrim's progress fiction, I hope, I, I hope at the same time that, that is kind of lifting up this desire for, for strong fiction, for, for very strong Christian themes of fiction, that it, it also doesn't just limit us only to allegorical fiction, as we've said, that it, it sort of just opens the door. You know, it, it says, hey, there's a whole library of new fiction that's being created now, and like, here's, here's some more of that. 
I think that strong allegory, Pilgrim's Progress style, can, however, help to drive better Christian-made fiction that is not straight-up allegory. I think that simply training our minds not only to appreciate longer-form fiction, but simply to be aware of the fact that our creator has packed these Easter eggs into the universe. I mean, the, the scripture itself draws allegories uh, not just from Israel's past or Christ's parables, but from nature itself. Uh, the example of the seed, I mean, seeds and agricultural metaphors are all throughout scripture. There are warfare metaphors. The allegory is everywhere. And I think if we are looking at our real world as well as our fiction uh, with that level of discipline, I think that helps us to see the world how it really is, how God wants it to be. And I think that if we are becoming, uh, let me borrow some Pilgrim's Progress names here, uh, Mr. Distraction, you know, constantly focused on our social media feed and not being able to read a longer form fiction, that does not glorify God. Uh, instead, we need to become Mr. Discipline and uh, train our minds and our hearts to appreciate these stories regardless of their length. I I'm glad you brought up the example of the podcast because, I mean, we're in it right now. This interview now is going on about an hour and 20 minutes. Am I bothered about that? No, it's a fantastic conversation. Our listeners are not going to be bothered either. We're not sitting around just talking about sports and, you know, jawing just buddies. You know, we're getting straight to the point. I think that helps. We're cutting out the filler as best we can with occasional side trips into VeggieTales and Frank Peretti and such. Notwithstanding, <laughs> we're trying to focus. Uh, we're trying to practice what we preach here, you know, the discipline of focusing on the topic and respecting Bunyan for what he did, uh, respecting this effort to adapt it, you know, with those modern influences, the occasional self-awareness, but that earnest emphasis on the intricacy, the thematic depth of Pilgrim's Progress, which I think can only help us grow as believers and grow to train our imaginations for the glory of God. So, uh, Zachary Bartles, uh, what's next for the Pilgrim's Progress podcast as it is now? Uh, you mentioned possibly a season three in the distant future, but you also mentioned not dealing with Bunyan's uh, lesser-known sequel uh, that uh, was a response to apparently the shippers who wanted Christian and Christiana to get back together. Like, What's plans for Pilgrim's Progress Part 2, if any, and, and what's next for the podcast, even if you all don't do that, the lesser-known sequel? I'm quite, I'm quite dedicated to doing Part 2, okay. Christiana's Travels. Yes. Awesome. But Mr. Sagacity as a narrative device. And so if people don't know, the first one, I think part of just kind of protecting it from being too much of a fantastical thing was to have it be a dream. Uh, so he falls asleep. There's a couple times in part one he wakes up and then immediately falls asleep again. I'm like, What's, what is the point of that? Yes. Yeah, I don't know. He's a sleepy he's, little fellow. He's sleeping it off. <laughs> yeah, but uh, in the, in the second one he falls asleep, and then in the in the dream he comes across a guy named Mister Sagacity, and they walk, and like the first third of the story is told by him in a dream by someone else. And it's like, all right, well, now we're like six degrees removed from any form of reality. So I am going to, so season two of the Pilgrim's Progress will be um, the story of Christiana. Uh, and I've been trying to set that up a little bit. Uh, and hers is very different. She goes to the same places, but it becomes more of a, it's, it's a, a band of travelers. You know, it's a, it's a uh, church story. Yeah, there's a Great Hope. Is that the name of their guardian? Mr. Greatheart. Yeah, Greatheart. That's right. Yes. Yeah, and he is, dude, that guy is awesome. Oh, he He's is killing he is giants. Amazing. Yeah. He doesn't even kill just the giants they come across. He's like, I hear there's a giant over there. Shall we kill it? And then they go like, they like take the fight to the to, to uh, despair and stuff. But uh, I'm definitely going to do that, God willing. Um, I, I really want to have the whole thing done, especially then for people who only read part one 
which is probably 95% of people who've read Pilgrim's Progress. They have never read the, the second part. And then, uh, yeah, for, for if that's still going well and I'm, you know, I'm still able to do it and it's still seen, if it seems to be having the impact that I want it to have and, and, and benefiting people and I have time for it in my life, I'd like to do a third, uh, season, which would be the Holy War and probably two for that then to, you know, give that, uh, you know, it's the, the battle for Mansoul. Uh, it's another allegory. And I think that could be really fun to do with the sound effects and things and the more military sounding music and everything. So is the Holy War in continuity with the Pilgrim verse or is it a separate uh, dimension? You know, I, 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 my desire is always, if you read my books, they are so in universe that even characters from like my serious novels that were put out by a big four publisher overlap with characters and re-raptured. Um, but I don't think it's possible to make it all in the same because it's now instead of a guy traveling who's allegorically a Christian spiritually on a pilgrimage it's the locale is a person's soul so yeah it, we, i don't think it works as a as a uh bunyan verse type thing okay like you couldn't have faithful show up it wouldn't work it wouldn't make any sense it's a category confusion gotcha well that's what happens with allegories you you go one way and you're comparing the trinity to that and then you're going one way and you're comparing a trinity to something else and then either way you're risking heresy but I'm looking forward to more seasons of this. I really hope that this happens because I've never read The Holy War. I only barely remember Pilgrim's Progress Part 2. And most folks who remember uh, the, the Bunyan works at all uh, mainly recall the most notable elements or the most frequently adapted elements of the first Pilgrim's Progress novel. This brings us to where you get this podcast and how we keep track of you and the progress of this creative effort on uh, social media or uh, what websites do you have to share? Right. Okay. So uh, I'm on Twitter at author. No, I used to be at author Z Bartles. Now I'm at 100% Zach, 100% Zach. Um, and you can find me on Facebook, author Z Bartles, author. I think it's holding us say both. And then you can check it if you would. Author Z Bartles, author Zachary Bartles, I think it's the second one. Uh, and uh, the podcast itself uh, on Twitter is uh, at Pilgrim Prog Pod. Um, and you can find uh, a website I'm slowly building with this project. And then I have hopes and dreams and plans to sort of uh, build out from that to more audio and maybe some paperbacks and things of some forgotten uh, early Baptist works, including a, another novel called Priscilla, which used to be very, very commonly read and and you'd find one in every Baptist home and, and it's kind of disappeared. Uh, and that is at uh, www.highandsilver.com. Let's go support this thing, folks. There's also a uh, support page for the Pilgrim's Progress podcast itself uh, that I'm going to include in the show notes. All those links, of course, in the show notes. Zachary Bartles, thank God for what you're doing. I really appreciate this. It has uh, personally benefited me in letting me appreciate allegory more instead of being this uh, snarky Christian who thinks that that's just the juvenile stuff. Uh, in fact, it's not just brought up to the level of the good Christian fiction. Uh, I think that often allegory like this can add depth that is missing from some Christian fiction that fancies itself so much more advanced than the simple allegorical stuff. So I just really appreciate that. And uh, I guess we may as well close with a Bunyan-esque reference. I wish you Godspeed. Right back at you, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Thanks, Zach. Well, to you, our listener, if you are a fan of Puritan writings, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, old-fashioned English, uh, King James Bibles, uh, or if you're not and you're uh, just getting into this for the first time and you're curious to check it out, 
We'd love to hear what you thought about this episode. Send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com or find us on social media. Just look for Lorehaven. Uh, we would love to know what some of your classic favorite books are from this era, or if you are enjoying a modern retelling of Pilgrim's Progress. So let us know. Next on Fantastical Truth, jumping to a completely different genre here, what if you were an ambulance-chasing lawyer, desperate for relevance and cash, until aliens, there's your favorite, Zach, aliens hire you to represent them before the United Nations. These aliens want to heal every human disease in exchange for just a small overhead, 30% of Earth's gold. Their plot turns you into the target for not only the big pharmaceutical companies you would be putting out of business, but possibly the aliens themselves. Well, that's the world of a new novel called Maxine Justice Galactic Attorney, which is landing on Earthlings shelves next week. And science fiction writer Daniel Schwabauer joins us to explore these new ETs who don't attack Earth's militaries, but big business. Meanwhile, Regardless of what stage of your pilgrim's journey you are on, whether you're stuck back in the city of destruction, you've cleared the wicket gate and the cross, whether you're still feeling that burden of sin or feel free of it entirely, keep the allegories in perspective. To borrow from Lewis's Meditation on a Toolshed essay, the allegories are like the beam of light. Don't look straight at the beam of light. Look along the beam of light, through the crack in the toolshed, to the greater light beyond, the light of God's word that empowers all of our great Christian allegories as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. <laughs>